0: looking forward to looking at uh, tonight the doctrine of divine impassibility. I know I've said for a while we get to that and we finally will. So um, that's where we'll be tonight and I would assume um, definitely at least next week um, we'll see where we end up then. Uh, But as always I want to begin by reading uh, paragraph 1 of chapter 2 in the Confession as we move along here. and. And then we will pick up uh, where we are in the middle of that. So, paragraph 1 in chapter 2. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath Immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. The rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and with all most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. So as we um, pick up where we left off, we are dealing with that statement that says that God is without body, parts, or passions. And specifically, um, tonight we will deal with the issue of God is without passions. This is also known as the doctrine of divine impassibility. Impassibility. So um, part of this will include... um, thinking back through some of the other things that we have already um, looked at um, because they all flow together. And I'm going to point that out as we uh, look at this. But, um, but we are focused on God without passions. Um, now, as I, I think I mentioned before, of this threefold statement, God is without body, parts, or passions – This part of it, the doctrine of divine impassibility, or God without passions, receives the greatest amount of criticism, um, is the subject of the most amount of debate among these three issues. Um, Now, I am of the opinion, having um, spent... Uh, a lot of time lately reading a lot of different uh, works about impassibility, I'm of the opinion that the debate really is based on a complete misunderstanding of what impassibility is and the historical um, uh, the historical context from which it comes. Um, I think, too, it speaks to the proneness of Man to think of God in human terms uh, when it is denied, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a little bit. Um, But if anything, we've learned um, so far looking at the confession, as we consider God's incomprehensibility, his immutability, his uh, non-corporality, God without a body, uh, his simplicity, as we talked about last time, God without parts... Um, if we've learned anything from studying all of these things, um, we realize that we are far too quick to assume that God is holy like man. Uh, that very quickly we want to assume as we read the scriptures or we consider God and his works, his nature, that we want to attribute those things in the same way that we would to Um, to mankind god himself acknowledges this tendency in psalm chapter 50 and verse 21 he tells the wicked you thought that i was one like yourself but now i rebuke you and lay the charge before you so it's in the in the eyes of god it is a wicked assumption and it is worthy of his rebuke to think that he is wholly like us um, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God reminds his people, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And of course, also the Apostle Paul reminds us of the inscrutable ways of God in Romans 11, Ephesians 3. Um, So it's very important, and I think this is where many go astray in working through this doctrine. It's very important that as we think about God, we not do so in simple human terms. It's going to be very important as we move along. Um, Now, if impassibility is, um, as I have proposed, most often rejected, on the basis of misunderstanding the meaning of the doctrine, what, we're, what we actually mean when we're saying it, and also the historical ignorance of the origin of the word, specifically related to the statement, God without passions. What does that mean? There's a historical significance to that that is very important. Um, so it's important, of course, that we define it appropriately so i'm going to define it but then i want to stop and make sure everyone is tracking with what i'm saying before we push on because having a right understanding of the definition is going to be important here divine impassibility is the doctrinal assertion most simply that god is immune to suffering that god does not suffer Um, Many have argued, and rightfully so, and I would agree with this, that God without passions, the statement in our confession, um, also includes the denial of God's ability to have, for lack of a better term, mood swings. God doesn't have mood swings. He does not suffer. Um, So when we use the word passions, what are we usually talking about? How is that term usually used? Okay, there's. It's emotional. It's. Is it usually a good thing or a bad thing? It's generally good, right? Um, that we usually use that in a, a positive term. We like to hear someone who's passionate about something, or you know, we like to hear passionate preachers, or you know, whatever it is. We uh, people who are passionate about um, their calling in life. We usually use that in a, a way that is a very positive thing. Um, it, you, generally, as, as Steve mentioned, it's most often referring to a type of human emotion. But the historical understanding of this word passion is very different. And we have to remember this because it's very clear that the writers of the Confession had something different in mind than what we just described. Um, the Greek and Latin origins of the word passion deal with suffering, uncontrollable rage, and folly. So, uh, I, which is it's odd to me that many very, very brilliant theologians don't address this and they get it wrong based on this one word. But um, think of uh, what do we call all of the moments leading up to and uh, culminating on the, um, the death of Christ. We call it the passion of Christ, right? Well, we're not talking about something that is a human emotion there. We're not dealing with What we're dealing with is the suffering of the human nature of Christ. Um, so that's, uh, that's what that word means, that God does not suffer and God does not have uncontrollable um, emotions. He doesn't have mood swings. Um, it does not negate, and this is where many critics go, and we'll deal with that more specifically, But God without passions does not negate the emotive nature of God. Or uh, a better way to say it maybe is that God has real emotions. Uh, Scripture clearly identifies him as expressing emotions at various events in time. We see it all throughout the Bible. That God is angry or God has wrath or God um, shows a particular type of love to someone. On and on and on. Uh, We deal with um, real emotions. But uh, we have to place this emotive side of God in its proper context. God is in no way changeable with respect to his affections even though biblical language is often very emotional. Uh, God does not actually undergo emotional change like we do. So, for example, we move from emotive state A to emotive state B, um, but we are very clearly different in how we are um, feeling, how we are interacting, on and on and on. So we can move... Man, some people do it very quickly, but we can move from anger to joy to sadness to indifference and on and on and on. We can go through this cycle, but you're not going to be angry and joyful all at the same time, are you? Um, These emotions are being expressed in different ways. We are changing um, as a result and... um, All of those emotions come about because of what? we just waking up and saying, I'm going to be angry today. I'm going to be joyful today. What's going on that is doing that? Okay, good. There's something outside or within um, that is impressing upon us um, this this emotional state in terms of um, how we get there. I guess we can say. So there's circumstances externally that are affecting I'm sad or I'm joyful or I'm angry. Um, Sometimes there are internal things. Maybe there's some internal um, sin that I'm dealing with, and that's going to affect uh, how I. Uh, how I'm engaging um, with my emotions, Uh, perhaps. uh, There's something physical that's doing that. Um, So what we're saying about God is that God does not actually undergo those emotive changes like we do, and he cannot be acted on in a way that would cause him to go through those emotive changes. In other words, there's nothing outside or within God that would cause him to go through an emotive change in the way that we do. Does that make sense? Okay, any questions about any of that? That's kind of the, the way we're defining this as we move through. And I think that will be really helpful as we deal with uh, the critics of um, impassibility. Yes, sir? Yeah, we'll, uh, we're going to deal with the emotive nature of God um, as we press on probably next week because we're going to deal with the specific biblical passages that show that. Um, But I think what's important right now to think about is um, that while we cycle through changes emotionally, um, we're talking about God not not dealing or not having emotion in the same way that mankind does, that he doesn't have human emotions, that he has divine emotion that looks very differently. Um, that God can express wrath and joy at the very same time because he is the fullness of wrath. He is the fullness of joy, um, as we dealt with last time, as we dealt with divine simplicity. Um, So um, just, I think, probably easiest for us to think about right now before we get into dealing with the motive language of the Bible is... um, thinking of it in terms of God not expressing emotion in human ways. He doesn't express it or experience it in the ways of humans. Any other questions? Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. He's not led by, guided by emotions. Um, uh, You can say it this way too, though. If... When I sin against God, that does not, his emotive state doesn't change. But when I sin against you, yours would. Uh, Undeniably, right? That happens with all of us. Um, Part, you know, a lot of this has to do with, um, you know, God's, uh, God's foreknowledge, God's understanding, God's ordaining these things to come to pass, all of this that, you know, obviously God is not going to be, affected uh, in the same way that we would, knowing that he knows all things and has ordained them to be and all of this. Um, But we have to to think, too, in terms of the fact that all that we would identify as emotions find their fullness and their perfection in God himself, and all of them are um, ongoing, I guess you could say, or all of them are um, present at the same time not as parts of God, but as the fullness of God. Um, so not one thing is going to kind of stand out that right now God is more angry than he is joyful or God is more wrathful than he is sorrowful or whatever, that all of these things are present at the same time as God uh, moving forward. But yeah, that's a, great, that's a great way to think of it as well, that God is not being led by emotion. Um, there's nothing about God that... Um, uh, in, in expressing emotion that is kind of leading him along or he's making rash decisions or he's having these mood swings that he's saying, oh, I've had enough. I'm going to destroy all of you. <laughs> now, when we read the Bible, there are times when it seems like that. Um, but we're going to explain and work through why that's not the case. So, any other questions before we press on? All right. Now, pivotal to this discussion... Um, are the concepts of God's transcendence and God's imminence? Um, so we're going to deal with those real quickly. We've talked about transcendence um, a bit already, but I just want to make sure that we are on the same plane here because this is really important as we deal um, with the overall doctrine. Uh, transcendence, let me give you some... Dictionary definitions here. of That which is higher than or surpasses other things. Or the declaration, theologically, the declaration that God is transcendent means that God is above the world and comes to creation from beyond. That God, in other words, is not in as a part of the creation, um, but he is outside of it. And we're just dealing with the word transcendence because we hear that and immediately think, but God is a part of the creation. Yes, he is, but that's something else entirely. So the declaration that God is transcendent means that God is above the world and comes to creation from beyond. Immanence is the idea that God is present in, close to, and involved in creation. Unlike pantheism... Pantheism is the idea that God, um, God is in all the world and um, that God is everything, uh, that you are God, um, or that God is the soul of the world. These are pantheistic ideas. Um, Christian theology teaches that God is constantly involved with creation without actually becoming exhausted by creation or ceasing to be divine in any way. So God is intimately involved in every detail of your life to include the number of hairs on your head, and yet he doesn't, um, he doesn't cease to be divine. He doesn't become, um, in his divinity, does not become human. Um, in, in, we're going to deal with Jesus in a little bit. I know that is coming up uh, as we work through all of these things. What about Jesus? We will deal with that, I promise. Um, but the imminence of God is that he is always present. God is, uh, as the children's catechism, where is God? God is everywhere. Or as Eva says, God is everywhere. He is present at all places, at all times. There is nowhere that we go uh, where God is not. Um. Now, these concepts seem to be opposed to each other, don't they? This transcendent God who is out there uh, above the world who has to Come to creation from beyond. And yet he is intimately involved in every minute detail of this life. Um, But they are present realities in the scriptures. And we can't deny either one of them because the scriptures present both of them clearly. It is God's interaction with creation as a transcendent, imminent, divine being. Um, Now remember we dealt with the incomprehensibility of God and that speaks of his transcendence. That God is um, uh, that God is so great and magnificent and glorious and beyond us that He is fully incomprehensible um, in the sense that we will never fully know all there is to know about Him um, uh, onto eternity. But that does not lead us to the conclusion that God is unknown or unknowable. God has revealed Himself to us in nature. He has revealed Himself to us in Scriptures and through Jesus Christ. So the biblical understanding of God's transcendence demands that God, and this is where the two come together, demands that God be present to and active within the created order as he truly is as the holy other. We talk about God as the holy other. That he be present and active precisely because he is the holy other. So, I'll explain this a little bit more. Uh, For the Bible, God is transcendent, not in the sense that he is far away or inaccessible to the created order, but only that he is wholly different than the created order and is related to and active in the created order as the one who is wholly different. Does that make sense? Well, there's a lot of language kind of tangled in there. but So God is accessible, but he is wholly different than his creation um, in every way, you, you name it. Now, um, But at the same time, uh, he is completely and intimately involved in all of the minutiae of our lives. Um, Now, this concept of God's transcendence has been heavily abused in the 20th century and beyond, uh, but historical, biblical understanding of transcendence has been uh, that by its very nature, it only expresses who God is in relation to what he is not. In other words, uh, that he is not a part of the created order and therefore, as a result, he transcends it. If God's not a part of this, then he transcends it. He's above it. He's over it. Um, equally, to speak of God's imminence, his presence, is not to speak of God in himself as if there were aspects of him which are part of the created order, but rather it specifies that he who is not a part of it is nonetheless present in it and active within it. Um, so these concepts, this transcendence of God, that God is um, wholly other, and the intimate um, involvement of God in all of creation, these two concepts and how they relate to one another is very, very important for a right understanding of impassibility. If we highlight one over the other, we're going to go in one or the other direction. One is that we're going to say... Um, that God is um, stoic and cold and unconcerned and has, um, has, shows no emotion whatsoever. And anything that the Bible ascribes to him as emotive is simply um, uh, words that don't have a whole lot of meaning. There are those who would argue that it's completely false. The other end of it, and the, the other end which we're going to deal with more uh, because it's more popular, um, is that, um, that God can and does suffer... And that human actions, uh, the actions of the created order, do affect God in the sense that he is going to undergo emotive changes. Um, So we'll talk about that. But if you, uh, one is highlighting, over highlighting the transcendence of God, he's so otherworldly that um, nothing at all has any way of um, him expressing any kind of emotion. Or, um, you know God is so much like us that uh, we can influence how He functions um, and uh, we'll we 'll see how specifically the doc, um, the false understanding of open theism comes out of all of this, uh, and we 'll deal with that uh, later. Part of this too is us understanding this logical flow of the language within the confession itself. Think of this. If God is without body, or uh, theologically he's non-corporal, if God is without parts, or simplicity, as we've discussed already, um, if God is without body or parts, he cannot be reduced to any action inside or outside of himself that would affect him, would affect change within him. In other words, God does not cause, if, is, I, I guess we should think about this, is God the cause of all things, the ultimate cause of all things? Yes, I hope we can you know, all affirm that. God is the ultimate cause of all things. So, if God were to be changed by anything inside or outside of himself, how would that have to be caused? By he himself, Right? So God would have to, um, if if God were affected by our interaction with him, for instance, God would be the ultimate cause of um, us doing what we do in order to affect his change from outside. So what we're saying is God does not cause anything within himself or outside of himself to become active in a way in which... It will act upon him to create a change in him. And we talked about his immutability. What is immutability? God does not change, right? Um, So you see how intricately woven all of these parts are. Um, It's very important to understand them together. Now, divine simplicity... As we talked about before, teaches us that there is no distinction between God's actuality, in other words, God has no cause, or, um, yeah, that God is the uncaused cause, is the language we can use. That nothing caused God, but He is the ca- ultimate cause of all things in the universe. So, there's no distinction between that and God's essence, God's attributes, or who he is, or better said, maybe how he is. So if this is just true, and I believe it is, then God cannot become something greater, God cannot become something lesser, and God cannot possess passions. He cannot undergo change. God did not cause himself God has never added to himself. That's interesting to think, isn't it? Nothing is that is the cause of itself. Nothing exists that caused itself. Not even God. He didn't cause himself, he always was. I I can't give you any more than that because that's all I know. (laughs) He is not the cause of himself, he is uncaused. Nothing is in all of the universe that is its own cause. So God is the uncaused cause and cannot undergo passions. He is pure actuality. In other words, the nature of God is not to become... But to be, remember we talked about before, all of us in one sense are becoming, right? We're aging, we're changing, we have different emotions, we have different um, things that develop within us. We are becoming. God is not becoming, God simply is. And he cannot be moved to further actuality um, by himself on himself, to himself, or by anything external to himself from the creation. Um, This is, if you were interested, I won't go into all of it, but if it's something that really interests you, this is all opposed to some of the teachings of uh, theologians like Karl Barth. Um, Barthianism um, taught something very different, in essence that God is always very busy causing everything to exist, to include himself, Bartonism is this idea that God exists because God keeps himself in existence. But if he ceases to exist, then everything else ceases to exist and everything just kind of disappears. So, a little odd, but um, it's a very popular teaching in the early, mid 1900s. Any questions so far? I know we're diving in pretty deep. <laughs> okay? Well, I don't know about you, for me, one of the more helpful ways to understand a doctrine even more fully is to deal with its objections. Um, So we're going to look at some of the objections to divine impassibility, some of them maybe you've already thought of. The most prominent, currently, contemporary critic of divine impassibility is Dr. Wayne Grudem, and I know probably... Some of you have his Systematic Theology book. This is directly from there, and he denies the very thing that we're talking about. So I will read to you directly from his Systematic Theology what he has to say. He writes, This attribute, if true, would mean that God does not have passions or emotions, but is impassable, not subject to passions. In fact... Chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of Faith says that God is without passions. This statement affirms more than that God does not change in his being, perfections, purposes, or promises. It also affirms that God does not even feel emotions or passions. Of course, God does not have sinful passions or emotions. But the idea that God has no passions or emotions at all clearly conflicts with much of the rest of Scripture. And for that reason, I have not affirmed God's impassibility. Instead, quite the opposite is true. For God, who is the origin of our emotions and who created our emotions, certainly does feel emotions. God rejoices. He is grieved. His wrath burns hot against His enemies. He pities His children. He loves with everlasting love. He is a God whose passions are, not, are, are to imitate for all eternity as we, like our Creator, hate sin and delight in righteousness. So, just hearing that and having worked through what we said impassibility is, what are you hearing that he is missing? Or what is he saying that is not accurate uh, with a pure definition of impassibility? Okay, good. Yeah, he's dealing with a whole different meaning than we are, isn't he? He's conflating or putting together this idea of, the Confession says passions, he's combining that with the emotive nature of God or the emotions of God. Um, And he's saying they are, in in impassibility, in the doctrine of impassibility, that they are the same thing. Uh, we're, not, um, we're not dealing with them entirely in the same way. There is a difference. There is a distinction. Nobody who holds to impassibility as it's truly defined would agree with his definition of what impassibility is. And that's the sign of a bad argument. If I can't agree with you, uh, your statement that I, of what I believe, then it's a bad argument. You have to start over. You have to define it from my terms, not your own. Um, so, uh, this is common though. This is probably the most common way by which people object to impassibility. And this is why I said, I think a lot of it has to do simply with the misunderstanding of the language that's being used. Um, but in concert with this, and in addition to his concerns, uh, most frequently the critics of divine impassibility present, um, objections that land in one of four or maybe a multiple of these four different categories. Um, The first, and this is really where Grudem is coming from, impassibility seems to contradict the way that the Bible talks about God. So we have all of this language about God's um, rejoicing, God's grieving, God's wrath, God's love, God's pity, all of these things. This idea of God without passion seems to uh, reject what the Bible is saying in all of those ways or at least contradict it. Uh, Secondly, they would say, impassibility seems inconsistent with the central Christian claim that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God who suffered. We'll deal with Jesus later, I promise. (laughs) But this idea that God cannot suffer, uh, God does not suffer. Um, If we say that, then what do we do with Jesus, would be their question. Um, And that's a very, very common objection to impassibility. Um, Third, impassibility seems to violate the idea of God's personhood, um, that we ascribe personhood to God. Um, A person undergoes emotive change, and therefore we ought to see that within God himself, and Uh, particularly in the human nature of Jesus. So impassibility doesn't seem to fit there for them. And fourth, it seems morally problematic, this doctrine, in the face of widespread, and this is probably most prominent, in widespread and horrible human suffering in the world. In other words, how could God be unmoved by the terrible suffering in the world? That's the most common objection. Um, a, lot of, um, a lot of Western theologians after World War II were rejecting impassibility as a result of um, the Holocaust. They were looking at everything that went there and said, surely God is not unmoved by all of this, and therefore um, impassibility doesn't make sense. Well, again, I think they're looking at it from a wrong base of terminology here. Um, So these are the main um, objections. Um, Each of them attributed to uh, a misunderstanding, I believe. As with Wayne Grudem, most critics assume that passions are dealing with the emotive nature of God, his love, his anger, his wrath, his jealousy, whatever. Um, To hear critics define impassibility, Uh, the God of us who hold to this doctrine sounds like he is aloof, he's uncaring, he's unfeeling, he's utterly indifferent to uh, the plight of his creatures. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. Sure. I to be fair to them i would say that they would say that um god is unchanging in his essence in his nature as god um but that his emotional state does change that his um uh, you know that he um what they're trying to preserve ultimately and we'll get to this but what they're trying to preserve is a god who is Um, He is omnibenevolent and he he loves everybody everywhere and um, he does everything that he can to show everyone everywhere uh, this great love that he has for them, even to the point of um, suffering alongside them. Um, So a lot of, uh, for instance, in the uh, the 50s, especially looking back on uh, the Holocaust and everything, Theologians had started writing about you know where was God in the midst of all of this? He was right there suffering alongside us. He was right there suffering right alongside his people, and all of this language of the so um, they would say that his his nature, his essence remained the same, but in terms of uh, emotion that 's what they 're dealing with that those were changing, are changing are ever changing um, but to be logically consistent in all of that, you have to come to the conclusion of the God of open theism which we're going to we're going to deal with in the end. If this is your conclusion, then open theism is the only thing that makes logical sense in its conclusion so we'll we'll get to that in a little bit but um, so inconsistent, I agree, but they would say it's not essence or nature it's simply emotion that they're dealing with um So for many, as I said, not all, um, the, uh, the conclusion is, um, logically, that open theism is the option. Um, let me give you a definition of open theism if you're not familiar, and it will be um, helpful um, as we go forward. And it's gaining popularity, so um, it's good for us to know about. Open theism is the theological view claiming that some of the traditional attributes of God um, ascribed to him by classical theism, which we would hold to, um, should be either rejected or reinterpreted altogether. Um, Advocates of open theism typically reject the claim that God is timelessly eternal in favor of seeing God as everlasting, everlasting. So they believe, and this may help answer your question, Melissa, they believe that God's essential character is immutable, it's unchangeable, um, but that God changes in some ways, outside of his character, his nature, um, as to respond appropriately to a creation that is ever-changing. Now, the most controversial part of open theism... are are those who go on to argue, and this is most uh, frequently dealt with when people are opposing open theism, is that um, God's foreknowledge is limited, is what they would say. Because of the limitations he has placed upon himself by giving humans autonomous free will. Um, Open theists argue that their position is more consistent with the biblical picture of God than is classical theism. Um, They say that we distort the biblical picture because of Greek philosophical concepts that have been imposed on our reading of the scriptures. So the conclusion then is that God does not know for certain what's going to happen in 20 minutes because it hasn't happened yet. And since we are autonomous... Creatures with free will that we will do what we will do and God doesn't know what that is going to be. So they would say to be fair to them that God does know everything that could ever be known about what has happened. He has complete knowledge of how everything is and is functioning. He has um, complete understanding of uh, what we're thinking and what is currently in our hearts. Um, But if we go against all of that and do something completely different in 20 minutes than everything our heart is leading us to, um, then he cannot possibly know that um, yet because it hasn't yet happened. Uh, They don't, not very well. Um, They would say, um, and the... Uh, the thing that's always presented to open theists is, um, you know, there's going to be an end to all of this, and God has already said what that's going to be and how it's going to be. Right. Yeah. Uh, they say that he is in the best possible position. They're very, very kind to give him this opportunity to make this determination. That he is in the best possible position, knowing all that he knows, um, to determine how it's all going to work out in the end. Um, and that he is involved enough in creation, um, not dealing with, the not imposing on the free will of man, but every other part of creation that he's sovereign over, that he will manipulate those things in a way that will bring about the greatest end. Um, so predestination is simply him determining that um, he wants these things to happen. Um, but since he... Um, and since he is able to sovereignly control everything, but won't impose himself on the free wills of men, he's going to, he's going, this is why you hear Armenians talk about, um, you know, well, uh, God did this or God did that in order that, um, you know, this person could maybe, uh, hear the gospel and repent. Um, and you may be the only person who ever tells them God may put you there. And if you don't tell them the gospel, then, They'll never hear it again, and their blood is on your hands. Well, that's all a part of that argument. That's the logical conclusion to it all. So, I'll give it to open theists. I think that they are consistent Arminians. Um, this, it really is a consistent logical outcome of, of what they uh, of what they believe. Did you have? So, the, was you, yeah, you... Well. Um, not necessarily that he knows what's going to happen in nature, but that he will exercise his sovereignty over it um, to where he won't intrude on your free will. Actually, open theists use their, their go-to passage in Scripture is when Abraham takes Isaac um, to sacrifice him at the altar and God stops him. What does God say to Abraham? Does anyone remember? Yeah, for now I know. I'm talking about Oh. oh. <laughs> well, it worked out. <laughs> well, there's they would say that nature like a hurricane or something like that, he is using that in a way um, that will bring about his um, desired end. Um, so he can manipulate the rain and the clouds and the ocean and whatever he wants to do, all he wants, because he's sovereign over this thing. But when it comes to you and your soul and your will, he's not going to impose himself on that because that wouldn't be the loving thing to do. Yeah, we're in control of our own wills. Yep. Yeah. Well, yes, he's going to—he's literally going to move heaven and earth to bring us to a place where we say, "All right, I give up." Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's um, to deny God His sovereignty in this regard, and and really, I think in the end, to deny impassibility is is shrinking God. Um, the thing we'll deal with at the end of the, dealing with this doctrine is what do we lose when we get rid of impassibility? I think we really lose the very thing that all of them are trying to uphold. Um because we shrink it from its its fullness and its perfection as it's found in God to something that is man sized. Um and that uh that's very low when you consider who God truly is. Um we're about out of time. Let me let me finish up with this and then we'll we'll uh, get out of here. Um One of the more prominent open theists, there's really two of them in America right now um, that are promoting it. One is named Greg Boyd. He's in Minneapolis um, or St. Paul. And the other one is a guy named Clark Pinnock. Um, Clark, uh, was he used to be a uh, Reformed um, seminary professor. Uh, He turned uh, to become an open theist. How you go from that, I don't know. But uh, he's a heretic, so I guess I do know he was never... Uh, of God in the first place. Um, Here's a quote from Clark Pinnock. God is not cool and collected, but is deeply involved and can be wounded. Um, He goes on to say that God can only truly show divine love and tenderness. Notice this is always the attribute of God they want to come back with. God can only truly show divine love and tenderness by making Himself vulnerable within the relationship with us. So it's not love unless God makes Himself vulnerable to us to be hurt. Um, and it's uh, it's better to it's what is the cliche? It's better to have loved and been hurt than to have never loved at all. It's as though that is like God's phrase. Like, I I loved you with all my heart, but you never acquiesced. And so I'm broken by that. I'm hurt by that. Um, You never repented of your sin, and I did not desire that you would be condemned. And since you did not do that, I am grieving. I am sobbing. I am in tears. Um, But let's be honest. This is the picture we get from um, uh, who Jesus is, right? God is knocking at the door, begging you to open it up, and he's wringing his hands and begging and pleading and crying, and won't you please just come. Um, He's very weak and frail and can't do a whole lot on his own. It all depends upon us. Um, So the question then, is God the tempestuously passionate God of open theism, who is subject to hurts that may be inflicted on him by his creatures, or is he the utterly indifferent God that open theists say go with classical theism, who at the end of the day looks a lot like a metaphysical iceberg? Um, which one is he? Well, of course, we look at both of them and a right understanding of impassibility and say um, that neither one of these is accurate. Um, this is not what the writers of the Confession have in mind. This is not what a right understanding of impassibility leads us to. Um, So what they're saying is that their God can be wounded by his own creation that afflicts on him anguish and woe. Uh, He is regularly frustrated when his plans are thwarted. He is bitterly disappointed when his will is stymied. And it happens regularly. So open theists have placed God in the hands of angry sinners Uh, Instead of sinners in the hands of an angry God. Because only that kind of God is capable of true love, uh, gentle, genuine tenderness, or meaningful affection of any kind whatsoever. Um, And in fact, since the God that we uh, profess is not capable of being hurt by his creatures... Uh, open theists insist that he's also incapable of being relational on any level. He's too detached, he's too unfeeling, he's too apathetic, he's devoid of any kind of sensitivity whatsoever. So according to open theism, uh, those are the inescapable ramifications of the doctrine of divine impassibility. And it's just an absolute farce. It is, uh, this is so far from what we're actually talking about, um, so far removed from the actual doctrine. Um, So the answer uh, that we will get to um, for several questions. How are the numerous biblical references to the emotive nature of God consistent with the impassibility of God? We will look at the scriptures next time uh, to look at those passages. Um, Is he indifferent? Is God indifferent to human suffering? Is he indifferent to the eternal damnation of the unjust? Is he... um, Is he indifferent to the murder of his own son? Um, And we'll ask this. Doesn't impassibility make God out to be a moral monster who does not truly love anybody but only makes the claim to do so? That's what they're claiming, we believe. So we're going to answer all those objections when we meet next time. So we're out of time. Thank you for letting me go over a little bit here. Um, But again, as I've said with all of this... um, I'm, all of this I'm writing out as well, um, and uh, with footnotes and citations and everything. So, as we get through each paragraph, I will print it out for you and have it available so you can read it and study it in more detail. So, let's, uh, let's pray, and we will be dismissed. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity for us to, uh, to meet together, to study your word, and um, to, be, uh, to, move, to be moved to greater affections for who you are because of what you have revealed to us about yourself, that we can, um, we can discuss and um, contemplate and be in complete and total awe of uh, these great truths that we are discussing. Lord, I am thankful that you are an impassable God, a God who is not um, prone to mood swings, a God who is not um, making yourself available to be inflicted with suffering and and pain by those things outside of you, uh, which you yourself have created. I am thankful. Thankful, I delight and rejoice in the reality that you are um, transcendent and um, wholly other than us, and yet you have um, made yourself imminent and a part of our daily lives and all of the detailed minutiae of the day-to-day. Um, Lord, you are truly amazing, and um, we are constantly pointed back to the reality of your incomprehensibility. And, and Lord, I pray that it leads us all to greater worship and greater awe of your glory and your magnificence and the fact that you have called us as individuals to be your children and that you have loved us with an everlasting love and that you have invited us to know you, to trust you, and to walk with you for eternity. Lord, help us to dwell on these things this week, um, to have a greater understanding of them and to be awed by them, that you'd be glorified all the more through us. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.